Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. Y'all, we really fucking did the thing. Oh my God. We got Millenniagram funded because everybody sent their nudes and ludes and hofos in and we are officially funded, which means that you're going to have to put up with a lot more of this. Are we okay with that? Okay. Don't care. Um, I am so excited because on this episode, we are going to continue the conversation that we started about sex, exploration, non-monogamy, all the things. We are literally just scratching the surface here. You're going to hear from a couple of different people. You're going to hear from sex educator Hannah Bonning, and you're going to hear from my very own girlfriend, Rebecca Lujan Loveless, who has literally so many things that I could say about her. She's an educator. She's a chef. She is a former pastor. She's all the things. Anyway, you're going to hear a lot more from her. Sorry, you have to put up with it. She's a genius. So anyway, let's get into it. I'm really excited to kind of share and start these conversations with all of us. And I expect all of you to be continuing the conversation on Twitter later. Follow me at Hannah Posh, P-A-A-S-C-H. Let's do it. Let's start. Okay, so I'm Hannah. My pronouns are she and her. I am a nanny and yeah. someone who spends too much time on Twitter. <laughs> really I feel like that's, I don't know what my work is. I have a variety, <laughs> I have a variety of jobs like every other millennial postgrad. And I co-run the Impurity Culture Twitter with Emily Joy, and we write for Scarletine. I think probably a, a gradual realization. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been, I think, kind of the, like, uh, on the heretical side of the evangelical world. <laughs> like, even as a kid, I, like, on occasion got in trouble for, like, asking too many questions. Oh, I hate that that's a thing. I know. But so I... I think it all sort of happened like at the same time and over a long course of time with growing up from becoming, I mean, I grew up uh, in a very evangelical Anglican church and started questioning a lot of the denominational stances on sexuality and even ordination of women. I was like, this doesn't seem so right. And if that doesn't seem so right, like, what's the deal with this whole thing? What else is wrong? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And also, as I started learning sort of more about feminism and gender studies, thanks Twitter for, like, the crash course in women's studies that I never got in college. Oh, my God. It's been so formative. I I joke that, like, Twitter taught me my feminism and turned me gay. And I think both (laughs) of those things are true. Because I was exposed to voices that I had just not encountered sort right. of growing up. So I started shifting in beliefs about, yeah, sexuality, what is acceptable, what is sinful. I've always not really liked being told what to do. So <laughs> I think it was pretty easy for me to be like, well, like, who says we have to wait until we're married to have sex? I mean, if you're like in a loving and committed monogamous partnership, that should be fine. And from there, it has just been a slow and steady decline to the the full heretical stance of fuck whoever you want, whenever you want, as long as it's consensual. Right. And I think, so, 
something that, that I've been like kind of coming to terms with as I realized that that is okay is there were a lot of, there were a lot of, um, I don't even know if coping mechanisms is the right word, but as soon as I realized that, you know, sex positivity was a thing, that consent was a thing, that autonomy was a thing, I, it kind of became like this free-for-all experience for me. Um, but then I realized I had all of these coping mechanisms left over from purity culture that, that weren't really empowering me to make sexual choices that were actually in the interest of my well-being. Mm-hmm. And so kind of um, I'm interested in kind of your take on how to build up like a, a sexual vocabulary, but also like a, um, a self-understanding that helps you make choices that are actually empowered versus just looking yeah. that way. I think it's hard. I think especially when you come out of purity culture there can be on one hand a lot of like hesitancy about becoming sexually active Mm. because of all of the shame and guilt that is built into you and then on the other hand it can really easy to be like well I have no rules no boundaries I can do whatever I want and maybe make choices that aren't the best for you Mm. but I think you will still learn from those choices you know it's true it's true like something that like Antonia and I talk about in our relationship is that you don't always know what your boundaries are until you hit them. Yeah. So sometimes you have to make mistakes and it sucks. It can be kind of alarming too, to sexual partners who obviously want your good um, Mm -hmm. to be like, Oh shit. Like I broke a boundary that I didn't know existed. And you're, and you're kind of like, I totally get your, I don't know. It's it, it. I've had to navigate that kind of in my own partnership of like coming up against boundaries all of a sudden that I didn't know were there. And so of course mm-hmm. I hadn't articulated them and it's not my partner's fault for not having known them. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, there, there can be kind of like a defensive mechanism of like punishing somebody for not adhering to a boundary they didn't know about mm-hmm. <laughs> that I've had to kind of fight in my own well, it's, I mean, you feel like it's someone else's fault, right? They violated right. a boundary, but right. you didn't even know that that was a boundary. And so, like, our, our instinct is to be mad at someone else for hurting us, even though it's someone who would happily respect your boundaries if you said if what If you were, were aware of them. This yeah. is why I think, like, communication, <laughs> I, think <my laughs> entire, I think my entire sexual ethic is just communication. Yeah. That's, it's really important. I feel like a lot of people say communication, but maybe don't know what entirely that means because it's like maybe the word has been overused and mm-hmm. co- communication means something different in evangelical purity culture than it means yeah. for us in like sex positive heretical land. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are, what is kind of your rubric for good sexual communication? I think, uh, so my kind of like, my my rule for all communication is that you should always be both honest and kind. Mm. So, like, almost in a, like, speak the truth in love way, but not really, because that <laughs> shit is, like, so co-opted. Um, but I think that you always need to be honest with people about where you are and what you need, but you can do that in a way that is kind and in a way that is not like harsh or demanding or cruel because i feel like honesty in like evangelical land can be such a bludgeon like oh it's just just, like it's so 
it's so it, it can be so hurtful even when it's the truth mm-hmm. well people use that whole like speaking the truth in love thing as an excuse to like sit people down and be like here are your sins that we're worried about (laughs) or like here are the things that you're doing that we are concerned about and it's just us speaking the truth in love because we don't want you to go to hell (laughs) so I think you have to relearn how to be honest in a way that is remaining true to who you are but without like using honesty as a weapon Mm. that's really really good and I think I think I have experienced honesty as a weapon. I think as somebody who's a four and in the feeling triad, I think I I tend to err on the side of being kind with less truth. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, I just don't want, I, you don't want to hurt their feelings, you know? Yeah. Um, and sometimes the truth does hurt people's feelings, like, because it's just, <laughs> it's amoral. It doesn't take into account what somebody's feelings are going to be about it. Yeah. Um, and so finding, finding that balance has been tough for me on the opposite side of like, how do I, how do I communicate all the truth that I need to without, I, I don't want to say without hurting people. Cause I feel like it can hurt. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think people, I think it, it will hurt. It will be painful. I don't know. I think more in terms of like painful than hurting people. Mm. Like I am not intentionally trying to hurt any of my partners or anyone when I am being honest about what I need, but it might be painful for them to hear. Painful versus hurtful. That's really good. And I I think it puts the onus on each of us individually to be like, okay, my feelings are my responsibility. Yes, they should Mm -hmm. matter to you as my partner, but also how I feel about what you're communicating about your boundaries, what you're comfortable with is, is my work to navigate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also being able to understand what's about you and what's not about you. Mm. Like if a partner is communicating a boundary that they need and I feel, I feel pain or I feel hurt by it. I need to take a step back and figure out, okay, why am I hurting? Mm. Am I hurting because they're intentionally being hurtful or am I hurting because they're setting a boundary and I am finding that boundary to be offensive for some reason? Right. And then why? Like, why am I upset by this boundary? Yeah, that's really good. I talk a lot in Millenniagram about writing survival stories. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, the, how we relate to each other, those are our own survival stories. We continue the same patterns of, um, you know, maybe if we're an anxious person coupling with a withholding person, um, we find that we fall into these same rope patterns of relating to one another. And that's not to say that the person that you picked can't be the right one for you, but you need to address head on the patterns that you've created. And I think it's important to differentiate between scared and uncomfortable. Doing anything outside of the accepted relational norms can feel scary, but underneath the fear, there's always an excitement, a relief, an expansion in the lungs, in your capacity to breathe deeply, reminding you that you are on your own right path. Unfortunately, a lot of us who are raised in purity culture of some kind often mistake our bodies not consenting with this healthy fear. We're so used to being manipulated into either repressing our bodies or allowing someone else to use them to meet their own needs. Most of us aren't used to asking our bodies direct questions and waiting for them to answer back. When we start to, as Jamie Lee Finch would say, enter into a relationship with our own bodies, sometimes it takes them a bit to trust that we're actually listening and will act on what they tell us. 
I've been waiting so long. Hey everybody, I'm Rebecca Lujan Loveless. So that was essentially what Josh and I were trying to do. We wanted, we, we were, we, we were pretty clear that he and I wanted to see someone together. Um, and that, um, that is rare. Yeah. Um, and so then I, you know, I just recently found out there's a term for that and I understand the term because I'm sure that that is the case. I actually have a friend who's talked about that she gets hit up hit on a lot at bars by like married couples or you know monogamous couples that are looking to have fun with a woman and I'm like that's not what Josh, that's not what Josh and I were trying to do but it very much appears that that is mm, the case yeah so it was a little embarrassing for me to find out that there is a term for it because I'm like I the so here's an in- interesting thing too is that we had you know we had gone on a couple dates with women um, and Josh, again, was the one to say to me first, I, you know, this, that's fun and all, but I would actually rather, I think what I'm learning now that we're dating for the first time in our lives, I'm learning that I actually connect, I actually have more fun when I'm actually connecting with someone, mm. that it's not just kind of like a frivolous kind of surface, you know, um, experience, but that there's time to actually connect with someone. Right. And that really hit the nail on the head for me because I was like, yeah, we both don't have experience dating. We don't know what that's like. Um, and so kind of th- these one-offs or two-offs are not very interesting to us. It's not something that we're really interested in. So, um and I know, obviously, it takes time to get to know someone, too. So you have to go through that initial weird phase. But um, that that's what I want to say about unicorn hunting is that I realize that there's a term for it. I realize that is something that we've actually we've landed on being with one woman together, which we'll get to. <laughs> um, but that, that the, the initial motivation for us wasn't to just find someone who wants to have sex with us. Like that was not a thing for us. We weren't interested in, in that. And mm. in the long term, we wanted to actually find someone to have a relationship with. And for us, it was a sense of curiosity. What would it be like for us who were very, very much in love? Um, we're very committed to each other. We were raising a family together. What would it be like for us to date another woman? Um, it, is, it, is it something that will be fulfilling? Is it something that is for us? We didn't know, but um, we were willing to kind of figure that out as we went together. And it seems like a little bit of a sex negative take for people to be like, to look down on folks who are just looking for sexual experiences. Yeah, it's true. Um, Because, you know, something that is important to me is we all have to set our own boundaries with who we interact with. So um, anyone can choose to not interact with couples. And, Absolutely. Um, couples that can choose who they interact with. Well, and we can just all pick for ourselves. We can all. I mean, consent is is you know essential. So if you don't right. consent, you don't have to engage. Um, and I think what's interesting is um, after meeting my current girlfriend, she's taught me a lot about um, the idea of like there are people out there in the world that that is that is something that they're interested in is being with being with two people that are in a relationship. And I think that that is fascinating to me because I had never thought of it before, but then all of a sudden it became something, became clear to me that that's something I wanted. Right. And so it's like, but I was already, I was already already coupled. I was already partnered. So it seemed like it's, I, I, I love the idea though, that there are people that are, that 
feel like monogamy isn't for them. And I think monogamy is chosen for all of us, just kind of as the default. But there are people out in the world that that's not something that fits for us. And so I think that that is a beautiful thing is to be able to like um, celebrate that as well, that it's not that it's not prescriptive for everyone. Okay, so exactly one week ago, we blew up the internet with all of our nudes, our lewds, and our hofos. Yes, I coined that. It's a ho photo, okay? Don't at me. Um, we still really need your support. Um, if you want more Millenniagram content, if you want to help queer creators and queer producers get this out in front of you, then please go to patreon.com slash millenniagram and join us. You can sign up for a dollar. You can sign up for two dollars. You can sign up for five. Honestly, honey, whatever you pay for your iced coffee like once a month, you can hand us that and we will make you beautiful words that make you cry, that make you discover new things about yourself. I mean, not to amp it up too much, but we kind of the shit. So hit us up, patreon.com slash millenniagram. You'll get access to lots of juicy, juicy, unedited interviews. The perks, honey, they are wild. Get on it. Yeah. And I think like one, I think being able to pick what we need at a certain time is especially helpful in thinking about like monogamy and non-monogamy yeah um because some people feel like well once once you're monogamous you're monogamous forever right and you can never do anything else and two i've like had some discussions with people about like coping mechanisms and when i'm it was it's sort of like a long story to get there but one thing that really stuck with me is the woman was she works as a chaplain in a women's prison and a lot of people that she worked with had been in abusive relationships oh totally and so she said that one thing we we do is that we don't judge our past selves for the coping mechanisms that we needed that's really good and like maybe what you needed to do to survive at that point was drink a lot of alcohol or (laughs) like you know that was like it's not necessarily a great choice if you just look at it objectively but whatever you needed to do helped you survive that point in time and now that you're in a different place what's a healthier way we can handle some things yeah that's really good So I wrote the copy for this episode a long time ago and so much about my understanding around my own body has changed and evolved since then. I think for me, the idea of consenting within myself before I can consent to someone else has been this recurring theme. because so much about the way that I was taught to understand sex when I was younger had little to do with what I actually wanted. It was all about meeting the needs of somebody that you loved. And so, specifically for me, and being a four in the image triad, wanting to project a version of myself that is caring and giving and easygoing and the cool girl like those are all of the things that I wanted to be um and I think I sort of allowed that that idea of being the cool girl who's down for anything um to sort of cloud my own sexual desires um and I allowed it to be a replacement for actual um actual self-led sexual connection um 
I think it's important to approach these issues with a trauma-informed lens, um, with the understanding that not only was I not given sexual agency in any of my education around sex growing up, but also the sexual um, trauma that I have experienced since then has sort of solidified both these fawning and freezing reactions within myself. So oftentimes my body can react um, as if she is in danger when she's not. Um, and that fucking sucks. It's really hard to come to terms with. It's hard to find language for. Um, I think there is so much important conversation about enthusiastic consent, but you know, how do we how do we provide enthusiastic consent when our inner self and our bodies are at odds with one another? Um, and I think for me that has meant um, that has looked like taking a step back from sexual connection so that I can find that connection with myself first and foremost. Like this idea of being my own primary partner and, and even in the sexual realm, like um, masturbation doesn't have to just be the thing that gets you off in between sexual encounters. Like um, for me, healing from sexual trauma has meant that I have to be the one um, providing and, and sort of orchestrating um, my own pleasure experiences. Um, and I'm really interested to hear how that looks, like what um, healing from sexual trauma looks like for the other numbers as well. Um, I know it's a difficult subject. I know that it's hard to, um, it's hard to talk about this shit, but somebody's got to, right? And what's so exciting and, and a little terrifying, admittedly, but what I think is exciting is that there are so many different iterations of non-monogamy, yeah. you know, and, and even, you know, I've been aware of and open to non-monogamy for a few years now, but I have only in this last year started to realize there are different kinds mm -hmm. of, you don't have to just be open right. to be non-monogamous. Right. You can have closed partnerships yeah. and you can have um any kind of iteration that fits you which to me seems so much more in keeping with just the way that humanity mm -hmm. is like we are all so unique we all have such unique like emotional interests and desires which i think is kind of where we can fit the enneagram mm -hmm. back into this because um you know it, it has a lot to do with both our perceived needs our motivations our our fears and our triggers, you yeah. know, there's a lot of that to navigate, yeah, especially absolutely. in non-monogamy. Yeah. You have multiple people's triggers and totally. fears and whatnot to handle. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, as an eight, what kind of, what kind of personality types are you attracted to, not attracted to? And I don't, I've kind of expanded the question to be less just romantic but also mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. platonic connections because mm -hmm. i think i like um i don't like the hierarchy of relationships the way that we talk about romantic right. relationships as being the, the pinnacle, pinnacle. Yeah. yeah exactly so yeah. um yeah who who kind of stands out for you well i would say that um i would say that there are a couple uh, I would say three Enneagram types that are mystifying to me. 
um, which just points to an opportunity to be able to to gather my curiosity and find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say fives, sixes, and nines. I am oh. mystified by. I <laughs> am literally like, huh? Uh? Um, I think that f- fives. I th- don't. It don't. Um, eights disintegrate to five correct yeah eights disintegrate to five and i have been in a very disintegrated eight many times in my life so i get i get parts of that in the sense that like during big chunks of my life when i was not an integrated healthy person um i i would um kind of obsess over information um and try to gather information but it was it was it was for a purpose. My agenda was, I want to prove my rightness. So <laughs> I, I had this gut feeling that I'm right about something. And so I would obsess about learning about what that thing was um, from an academic perspective. Right. Um, it, this goes back to actually what I was saying about changing my theology from being a complementarian yeah, to an egalitarian. Yeah. I was so disintegrated because I wasn't being, I wasn't being believed for being the strong person that I was. So I was being doubted and I was being told that I'm wrong about feeling like I am a strong person. And I'm like, nope, my gut is telling me I'm actually right. And so there's got to be evidence out there that proves my rightness. So I would just mm. obsess. Um, so that part of the five personality about like a love for knowledge and information, I understand. Um, to live like that on a regular basis just seems so exhausting to me. Um, I love to learn. I love to learn. But the academic, the constant lifestyle of nerding out about everything just feels really exhausting. Those years for me (laughs) were really exhausting. I learned a ton. Um, I became an expert on several different topics because I was obsessed with finding a way to support what my gut was telling me was true. Yeah. Um, But to live like that my whole life seems a little exhausting. Um, Sixes... um, my sister is a six. Um, I'm pretty sure she's a six. Um, and I know a lot of sixes as well. Um, the the um, hyper-vigilant um, perspective of life also seems pretty exhausting to me. <laughs> but I, I think I get it. I get it in the sense that it's like you gotta you gotta find things to um, you gotta find things to think about or obsess about or even worry about. Um, if you're feeling anxious and then that brings a little bit of power to feeling powerless about mm. the world around you. So, yeah. um, and then nines, I don't know much about nines, but from what I understand, they kind of like to watch life happen and pass them by. What do you call them? The wallflower? Or... Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't get that. <laughs> I don't get that. I just, I, I like to be the center of attention. I like to be, I like to, I like to set the temperature in the room. I don't mean to, I happen to just do it naturally, but I enjoy that about myself. And I can't imagine what it would feel like to be in relationship with a nine on a regular basis. They must probably be like, shut the fuck up. Dear God. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, those, those three personality types are very mysterious to me. Um, my husband is a three with a four wing. Um, so he is a winner at everything he does. Um, he has the Midas touch. Everything he has ever done turns to gold. Mm. He literally shits bricks of gold. Well, actually, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Let me correct that. He shits just shit. 
And people are like, that's a brick of gold. And he's like, yes, it is. And everyone (laughs) believes him. (laughs) So he just is good at everything he does. And, um, but he's also very highly, highly emotional. I think it's really precious how he is, um, such a strong achiever and he's such a winner. So he's perceived to be kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like impenetrable Mm. um but he is so emotional with his four wing he needs and craves deep intimate connection um he kind of turns into a little puppy dog sometimes which i just think is so precious because not very many people get to see that about him because he kind of gives off this persona of strength and i don't know like i just i think of i think of like um during the Olympics when the gold medalist gets above everyone else. <laughs> like, it's a perceived, you're on top. Oh. And so... The podium. Yeah, the podium. Effect. Yeah. And so most people just see him that way. So I think it's really precious when I get to see him, the the four part of him, be super emotional and super... Um, I was going to use the word needy, but I don't mean it in a negative sense. I mean it like, I think it's beautiful when he can show his needs. Well, and I think it's interesting. The three is at the center of the feeling triad. Yeah. And I think a lot of time that a lot of times threes get a really bad rap in terms of, um, accessing their feelings because, a a common coping mechanism with the threes is, oh, hey, I'm really good at reading feelings. Right. So I'm going to navigate yours right. and yours and yours and everybody else's around me in order to fit my strategic needs while ignoring my well, own. And guess what happens when he does that or when a three does that? They get put up on the podium. <laughs> because everyone around them is like, whoa, you how do you know me so well? Oh, my God, you just changed my life. Well, you know, Josh and I were pastors at mega churches for years. And I am telling you what, like, he would just, like, he would have one meeting with someone and they would come out just, like, a changed, transformed person because he does know how to navigate and read energy and read feelings. And and he's very, very intuitive, which is really interesting to me because I have never, I never used to see him as intuitive. But he, because he is a three, he knows how to um, pick up on nuances that I think a lot of people miss. Um, And then he reads them really quickly. And so people feel like they're getting their mail read and like, holy shit, how did you know that about me? Or I didn't even know that about myself, but you're absolutely right now that you say it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So then he gets put up on that podium as the, you know, the number one gold medalist. And he doesn't have to do any of the emotional. His own internal work. Yeah, his own internal work. So that has been, um, that has, for, for someone who is an eight with, I'm pretty sure with a seven wing, I think that has been... Um, a huge um, uh, source of contention between us because I'm like fucking committed to my fucking work and I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna I'm gonna get rid of all the bullshit in my life and I'm like I just like I can't I can't not be sincere about things um, so um, it's been hard for me to watch him appear certain ways um and then kind of because i'm his lifelong partner know the behind the scenes to it um and the healthier he gets the more i see his neediness the more i see him um be okay with his neediness and i think that that is such a beautiful thing to watch is that he has worked so hard in the last several years to um to really not just want to bullshit his way through life but really kind of understand who he is 
Um, and that to me is probably the most transforming thing about our marriage is that he has been committed to do his own interior work for the first time in 25 years. So I would say probably three or four years ago is when he really kind of a switch was turned and he was able to go, I can't just live my life looking like I do the work. I have to actually do the work. Mm. Um, and he was terrified and I was, <laughs> I was terrified cause I'm like, Oh shit. Now he's going to start to like, you know, really feel things that are true and real to him. And they might be scary and they might be hard. And I've never seen him experience that before. So it's been really, really transformative for him, but also for our marriage. But I think this is a good transition into my other partner. Oh, yes. Should we talk about her for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, we can. We. I would love it. I would love it. So, not that this is going to be a surprise for anyone that follows us on Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> but I started dating you, Hannah Paul. Oh, my God. What? what? Nobody told me. We've been together for eight months. Oh, my God. Today. Oh, it is today. Oh, happy, happy month anniversary. Cute. We just did a hand Cute hug too. Hand I wish you could hug. see it. It's a beautiful hand hug. Um, yeah. So Josh is a three four, and then you, Hannah, are a four three. So my life is just a never ending roller coaster of you're welcome, feels and bitch. Um. But yeah, I obvious. It seems obvious to me now. I didn't know this before, but I clearly am attracted to people that have the three and four energies. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't have surrounded myself with with that. Even though she likes to whine and complain about it, but who me? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'll I'll complain about it forever. (laughs) Fair, but I do really love it. I think one of the things that is really fascinating to me is that eights get typed a lot with not being able to like feel their feelings and the more i understand the enneagram and i get to know other eights that is an issue for them it has never been an issue for me and i cannot quite figure out why i have always personally identified with feeling too much Mm. um and then also i that's been reflected to me my whole life that i'm just like addicted to People would say, I'm addicted to drama. I'm addicted to crisis. I'm addicted to... And I just like... this. It's evidenced in the fact that I started journaling when I was 12 years old. And I journaled literally... I'm going to be very, very um, conservative here. I think I, I think I journaled 350 days a year for Jesus Christ. 12 or 13 years. Oh my God. And these were just like, dear journal. These were like... I literally, I I feel like I was like a four. I would write in my journal entries as though one day millions of people would read them. (laughs) And I was like, this has got to be a good story. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like a four thing to do? Uh, Yeah, definitely. And I've always been very comfortable feeling my feels and I have so much of them and they're all very, very, very big. So I actually think that's one of the reasons why I'm attracted to, to the four personality type because they are, there is such depth of feeling there and I relate to that, strangely enough, as an eight. I don't know if that makes me an anomaly, but... Well, um, something that I've been thinking about a lot is how like white Western American culture really... Um, kind of it brings out the parts in certain numbers like I think that 
whiteness tells eights that in order to be strong, mm. they have mm. to be um, without feeling. Mm. And I sort of wonder if there has been a part of you that has always combated that in a way that maybe... Um, Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested yeah. in, the, in the cultural dynamics there. Yeah, there is definitely cultural dynamics there. So um, I was born and raised on Maui, Hawaii. Um, I am not Hawaiian, even though so many Haoles, which is the, the word for a white person, Haoles all the time will be like, oh, I was wondering if you were Hawaiian. Yeah, you look Hawaiian. Or they're like, <laughs> they're like Luhan. I wondered what that was. Oh, it's Hawaiian. You're like I'm super like, not. Obviously, you know nothing about Hawaiians. Because <laughs> um, I don't look Hawaiian, and Luhan is clearly not a Hawaiian name. But um, my parents moved there before, you know, when they were young hippies, and they met and fell in love there and raised a family there. Um, so that's my cultural... Um, background um that's my I, I would say that's the ethnicity that i identify with personally the most even though it's not my race um i was born in a very multicultural environment um very um asian american pacific islander centric um i am half native american um i am isleta pueblo and blackfeet and i am also irish and little bit of jewish and a little bit of black it's all kind of in my it's all it's all in there yeah um but because i didn't grow up looking asian or polynesian i was an outsider i was a howley right and i um i think i very much i have a lot of childhood trauma from from that fact of not ever really fitting in Mm. um and then also being um being biracial is has its own um has its own obstacles and challenges with it because you're not quite you're not quite brown and you're not quite white you're yeah you're not you're not you're not enough of either of those things to be considered fully one of those things right so um and then so you so you drop me being biracial into a multicultural um, multi-ethnic multi-racial culture and it's just it was a shit it was a shit show for me <laughs> but one of the things that was really beautiful about my multicultural upbringing is being um, surrounded with multiple languages, multiple cuisines, multiple heritages and traditions and customs and cultures and holidays. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know one from the other. You just that's you just celebrate those things and you have those holidays at school and right. you do those things. And so I didn't know that that wasn't a thing that, you know, and people would always like people would talk about people that lived on the mainland. And I was like, the mainland, what is that? Like, that's that's a whole other world away. <laughs> So um, when I moved to the mainland, it was a rude awakening. Um, but I think one of the beautiful things about being raised multiculturally is that I was exposed to strength that is very emotional. And one I just have so many, many memories specifically of learning about Hawaiian heritage um, and the, kind of the ancient Hawaiian people who obviously have been very, very colonized. But... Um, I don't know. There is um, their chants, and even hula is is an ancient Hawaiian. Um, it's a it's an art form that is a, it's storytelling. The Hawaiians um, were illiterate; they didn't read or write. 
um, until the missionaries came. And so the way that they passed on the information that was necessary for their culture to stay alive was through hula and through the oral tradition. Oh, And wow. it's very emotional. It's very, their chants are very emotional. Um, a, a lot of the chants have, like, kind of, I don't know, I think the haka has become very, um, um, kind of more culturally prominent. Um, I've recently, in the last couple of years, the haka is a very kind of similar um, way to tell a story that is very, very emotional. There's a lot of yeah. like, deep guttural noises and stomping and crying out. And to me, that's what strength looks like. It was actually kind of terrifying sometimes as a kid to watch that displayed in front of you with a group of people doing the hula and chanting and crying out. It was like, it's there's so much power in that that it's a little bit like it's overwhelming right so yeah i think i did get some of that i actually have never thought about it until right now some of that emotionality as strength for me like i feel like feeling your emotions deeply feels really strong to me and i was reflected in the evangelical culture it was reflected to me that that isn't strong that that is weak so my question is um there's so much communication that's involved in not only being oh in God. relationships, mm-hmm. but also navigating sexual interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you learn to communicate with your partner and now partners in a way that is healthy and life-giving to all involved? Oh. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> Well, having, um, speaking from my own personal experience, being in eight months today, (laughs) a polyamorous closed triad, um, it is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. The communication is literally in an, it's like a never ending incessant flow of communication. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, it's exhausting to do, but it's actually, I, I mean, I love, I love to communicate. <laughs> so <laughs> it is exhausting and I do need a break from it from time to time. But I really do appreciate the, um, the way that it feels to have, to have two partners that are also equally committed to communication. Um, I think learning, learning about your partner's f- core fears and motivations, um, learning about their childhood wounds learning about the coping mechanisms that they've developed to keep them alive because of those childhood wounds um, is essential to understanding them and to being able to have a sense of curiosity and compassion for them. Um, Trying to think of like, um, like real world examples of that. I mean, I, I think, you know, communicating in general um, with your partner or partners is daunting because it bring it it requires vulnerability it requires right. honesty it requires you showing up fully with how you feel and, right. and a lot of the times it's like it's great i love you so much you're so great and this is what i love about you um and then sometimes it's sometimes it's not the positive stuff you know yeah. a, a lot of the times it has to be when you did this i felt mm-hmm. and then it's not a good feeling right um so, I mean, that I, I think that that is actually really good right there. I'll just pause right there because I think um, one of the core fundamental um, 
dysfunctions of I think most relationships are is an, an, an inability to um, know how to own your shit mm. and know how to communicate when you're owning your shit. Right. So for me, it has meant literally life and death in my relationships in the sense was is this relationship going to live or die um with how do we handle conflict and how do we handle when we've hurt each other Mm. um like apology 101 is really fucking important (laughs) how do you apologize when you've hurt someone uh i'm sorry if you felt is literally the worst thing you could possibly to say say to someone that you've hurt um or um, accusatory, um, you you made me feel, um, really kind of takes the onus off of our own feelings and owning our own feelings. Nobody's making anyone feel anything. Yeah, the idea that you made me feel this way basically says my feelings are your responsibility. And so how do you differentiate between the hurt that someone caused you mm-hmm. and then making you feel a certain way about it so i mean that's that's a tough line for it me is to a draw. real tough line and I, I think in abusive relationships um there it gets even worse it gets even murkier because yeah. abuse cycles often happen um because the abuser doesn't understand or know what they are doing they don't realize that what they're doing is abusive but they're stuck in that pattern mm. of abusing um but what i think is really powerful is owning your own feelings and holding your feelings even in the in the face of abuse so when you said that i felt that is a really huge differentiation that brings space between abuser and abused or between herder and her t if you will like you said that thing you did that thing and i felt that says my feelings are mine and i get to do with them what i want and it also says your behaviors and your actions are yours. I'm not going to own them for you. Mm. So I think that that kind of learning that language is so crucial to healthy relationships. Understanding how to speak to your loved ones, whether it's romantic partnership, whether it's family, whether it's coworkers or friends. Um, learning how to speak to your loved ones in conflict is really, really important. Um, And you can't speak properly unless you understand appropriately in the sense that you have to know and be okay with your own feelings, with the signals your body is giving you and own them and be okay with it. Sometimes my body says to me, I'm not safe and I have to go, okay. And I have to tell my partners, I don't feel safe right now. And that feels bad because I'm like, I know my partners don't ever want me to feel unsafe. I know that. But I do feel that way right now, so I have to communicate it. And then we have to navigate what that means from here on out. Do I need to draw a new boundary for myself? Mm. Do I need to communicate to my partners, please stay away from that topic for a while while I figure out what's going on? There's so many things that come up, but if I make my feelings and my emotions the responsibility of anyone else but mine, then I'm doomed because guess what? No one's going to care for me and my parts the way that I can care for me and my parts. So I think that stuff like that, like the communication of um, the communication in conflict, I think is something that it's a skill. It is um, it's an art. It's a it's an art and a science. It's something (laughs) that can truly be you can truly get good at it. You can get really good at it. Um, But it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of risk in the sense that we have to put our vulnerability on the line and we have to be willing to be rejected. We have to be willing to be misunderstood. We have to be willing to 
even be hurt. I can give the I can give my most vulnerable self to you and you might not like it. That might make you feel a certain way. I have to be willing to endure what comes next after me putting my vulnerability and my honesty on the line. Mm, and that is really scary. Yeah, so a lot people. of people don't do it and then <laughs> they blame the other person like you should have known or you should be better at that. But I, if I didn't put myself at risk, then how would you know? How could you know? Wow, yeah. It's really, it's really fucking scary. It really is. Especially when you're dealing with parts. Parts of ourselves that are usually stuck in time, that are usually very young. They don't have the information. They don't have the language. They don't have the tools to, to navigate in a healthy adult relationship. So getting to know those parts and you doing the work yourself of unburdening them, of making them feel safe, of getting the information that you need from them so that you are communicating with your partners, not your parts. Right. Because that, so in the IFS world, that's called getting blended. When you get blended with your part, and I know that so many people will be able to relate to this. You get into a fight with your partner. It's usually your partner or it's usually your family of origin. And all of a sudden you feel like you're five or all of a sudden you feel like you're 11 or all of a sudden you feel like, and you don't feel like yourself. You feel like you're a child and you cannot communicate appropriately. You cannot communicate what you're actually feeling because you get blended with this young part. It's our job to do the communication with our parts, not our partners. We can't communicate with our partners when we're blended. That's just not possible. Because when we're blended, we are 11, we are 13, we are five. And how can a five-year-old have an adult, healthy, thriving relationship? They just can't. So we have to do that work, get the information from our parts, and then figure out a way to get back into self to be able to communicate. Hey, when you said that, it triggered this five-year-old part in me. And I know that I'm not five. I know I'm 41 and I know you love me and I know we're in this together. But my five-year-old felt really threatened. She felt really sad. She felt really afraid. And so while I try to understand how to unburden her, I need you to be more sensitive when you talk about this this certain thing or I need you to not tease me about that certain thing mm. because she feels really sensitive about that. Yeah, It's really intricate. It's not prescriptive. It's not this you should do this one way all the time. You just have to navigate in self. And it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> what kinds of people, what kinds of personality types are you attracted to? And then kind of what sort of people do you run into where you're like, you're hot, but I can't go there. Just for me. Um. Are you talking like friends or sexual partners? You know what? Kind because of, if kind they're of both. hot, like I'm here for it. <laughs> I also don't believe that friends and sexual partners need to be distinct categories. Yes, thank you. But most people like don't. That's um, just so un- not understood. Hannah, you know my other sexual ethic is fuck your friends. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, but can you say why? I mean, I know um, why, but. Tell, tell the you, people. I can <laughs> tell the people. So, uh, I mean, again, like I've talked about communication kind of being my kink. That's mm. like a joke <laughs> in my friend group is that communication is my kink. And I think what makes a sexual relationship good and I mean, like for one, healthy and also good, like good sex is communication and being able to have sort of that trust and openness with someone mm. where you can talk about what you want and what you need and even like here's how 
to touch my body or here's how I don't want to be touched or here's how I'm feeling right now. Um, that requires a certain level of trust. Yeah. Like that's really vulnerable to like explain to someone here's exactly how I want you to put your hands on my body. Mm. Um, that's terrifying. It really is. Like it's, it's, it's terrifying. And it also feels like weirdly selfish and that is for sure some purity <laughs> culture bullshit hangover stuff. Right. But so I think in order to have the kind of relationship that you need to fully communicate with someone, it's helpful to be to be friends with them. Mm. I feel like with with a lot of people that started as friends um, and then became sexual or not or whatever, um, if you're friends with someone, usually there's already sort of that foundation of trust and respect and understanding. Yeah. Which makes it just so much easier. It really does. And I've, I've had some I've had some really life-giving sexual experiences with people that I consider friends and not romantic partners. Mm-hmm. And it was just so... Um, it was just so soothing and kind of a relief. Like, there was so... There was so much less pressure. Because mm-hmm. I think... Um, I think when you put the pressure on a relationship to be all of the things, like to be, um, like the relationship. Yeah. And, and obviously there are people who come along who are the relationship or a primary relationship, but like, um, being able to, to have experiences where those are not all of the expectations right up front. Um, Mm -hmm. and of course, like sometimes it evolves into that. Um, hello, your story. Um, but, (laughs) but at the same time, I feel like, um, just, just being able to explore in a safe environment with somebody that I already trust has been, been super helpful in the past. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, this is kind of what I love about lesbians is that, I mean, there's, (laughs) there's like a whole joke, right? That, you know, like lesbians are the only people who can still be friends with people they fuck. Like it's the whole L word (laughs) chart situation going on. Right. But I also think that's kind of true in queerness that there is an understanding that there is not such a, such a stark boundary between platonic friendship and, and sexual friendship. Mm. Sexual friendship. I've, I've never heard that term. Did you make that up? I don't know. (laughs) Sexual friendship. Probably not. I mean, it's, it's a friend with benefits, you know, (laughs) like same thing. But especially when I started, like, exploring sort of non-monogamy, or, I mean, just, like, dating around, which is apparently a thing that, like, normal people do in high school or college if you didn't grow up in purity culture. And I was like, what is this? What? What? This seems seems fake. (laughs) And so I'd, like, just come out of this relationship, and I wanted to start like, learning how to date and see people and maybe have sex with them, but I didn't know how to do that because that's, like, terrifying. And I hate meeting new people. Like, first dates are the worst. Oh, my God, literal so actual that's, hell. Like, the actual worst. I hate first dates so much. So, honestly, I, like, low-key slid into the DMs of a an Instagram friend who was also, like, a real person in life friend. And at one point, we were just, like, talking about how hard it is to, like, find a good fuck buddy. <laughs> and I was like, but hey, you know, if you want some practice. We and then, like, try. the raised, it was, like, the raised hand emoji. <laughs> and, it, and it worked. It's so, that's amazing. I also, I feel like it's important to state here that at one point, 
you and I had a running Twitter thread of um, Hamilton come-ons at each other. And I we just, did? Yeah, I just really need that I to be immortalized. Yes, we... We I mean, like, that sounds like a thing I would do. We were quoting lines. It was quite a while ago. Like, it was definitely before we were, like, friends' friends. And, um... <laughs> that is... And I was like, this so is funny. my most favorite person on the internet because I feel, I mean, I feel seen and known. Was that also about the time when we had, like, a whole Twitter conversation about, um, like, testing lipsticks Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The kiss-proofness. Uh-huh. Yep, it was around Um, about that time. (laughs) That was when I was like, damn, look at all these hot people on Twitter. (laughs) When I started flirting with them. I think that might be around when I started flirting with Antonia. It definitely was. Actually. Yeah! So, thanks for that. You're so welcome. I am not asexual, so I cannot speak from personal experience right. here. Um, but something that is very important to me as a part of sex positivity is that sex positivity is being positive towards sort of any choices as long as they are your own choices, like made for your own desires and not damaging to others. For me, that's like that's sex that is good sex and mm-hmm. okay sex and like not sinful in quotes right. sex. If it is consensual if it's made out of your own free will and if it's not damaging to other people right and that means that sex positivity also includes folks who choose to be celibate yeah or people who are asexual or demisexual and that the way that purity culture kind of expects you to not have any sex at all like not have sexual thoughts or desires or emotions until you get married and then all of a sudden you should just like you should just suddenly be like a perfect sex goddess <laughs> for your husband because that's like obviously Ooh. what you're you know as a woman your job is to provide for your husband of like course. a warm body you know <laughs> Ugh, i hate it so much but it, yeah it's so real yeah and so there's that expectation that you should kind of immediately be able to flip that switch and have mm. sex and enjoy sex and have great married sex because you've been waiting so long for it right and so there are a lot of people who get really hurt by that maybe because they're asexual and they just don't enjoy sex like they don't want that or if you're if you're asexual and have grown up in a culture that tells you that like you're sexual purity culture places as much as an emphasis on being sexual as being non-sexual like it expects you to you know, get married in a, like, heterosexual monogamous marriage and then have sex and enjoy sex. And so if you are someone who doesn't fit that mold, that says that you're wrong. And so that can be, like, just as shameful as someone who is queer or wants to have sex before marriage. And there are a lot of people who like do it all right they like wait till they're married and then they find out that they they don't enjoy sex or it's hard or it's painful or it's you know you're not ready to like immediately flip that switch and then you feel like something is wrong with you yeah and you're broken sort of on on the flip side of things because you're not being sexual in a way that is expected from that script i want to imagine together a little bit about what could happen 
in our lives, our connections, our experiences, our physical pleasure, if monogamy stopped being the default. And not to say that, again, there's anything wrong with monogamy. I think that a lot of people who really benefit from monogamy have maybe internalized some promises that monogamy is supposed to provide that it doesn't. Um, and so we have to be truthful about those things. But I think it's interesting, and for me, the most exciting, the most self-led endeavors in this regard um, require curiosity. How can we explore further? Pass what we want in the moment sexually to build the kinds of relational infrastructures that fit us best. Because so many of us are trying to um, push square pegs into round holes. I mean, I honestly think, and this is my own very personal opinion, but like, maybe it's why a lot of us get divorced, question mark. I mean, something is not working about the way that we have orchestrated relationships societally. Um, the patriarchy, fucking evangelicalism, fucking um, just, uh, well, it, it, honestly, it comes down to the patriarchy and capitalism and um, the really oppressive cishet expectations um, of how our how we're supposed to relate to one another what kinds of roles we play in our relationships um, most of us have been taught either through toxic monogamy and the marriage worship of evangelical Christian culture which let's be honest was constructed primarily to further the patriarchy by limiting the power of anyone who wasn't the cisgender heterosexual man or the subliminal messaging from modern rom-coms that your soulmate is definitely out there and that given the right set of predestined coincidences, you will meet and definitely stay in love forever. Laws. Within this framework, anyone who's in love with more than one person is either the villain of the narrative or presented with a difficult and heart-wrenching decision. Picking which emotional connection will be the most conducive to long-term partnership and cutting the other one loose. Like... All of our movies and romantic storylines and beloved TV shows, <coughs> Bachelorette, ugh, are about this shit, y'all. Like, outside of enforced monogamy, there is no fucking story. At least not the same one. Like, non-monogamy is rife with drama and opportunities to fuck up, believe you me, because I have done them. But it seems like until we can allow every option to be on the table and understand that human connection is as varied as the people who are connecting... We're going to be forcing our square pegs into round holes ad nauseum forever. I try to play by the rule of not assuming monogamy, but actively celebrating it when it fits someone or a couple well. And it fits a lot of people I love really well. But it is truly my belief that once we start to get a handle on what our bodies are asking for in the moment, we can start to project where our bodies want to head. Like, what can we imagine for our futures? Um, the larger trajectory of joy and pleasure. It's a muscle, this self-knowing shit. What kind of relationship can I build where I am most likely to receive what's best for me and give the best that I'm capable of giving? I watched that fucking movie, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, and immediately felt in my body that that particular iteration was for me. Um, endless eye roll. At you fuckers pretending like that cishet married couple on Tinder looking for a one-night stand threesome you swipe left on last week somehow represents every partnership opening up to new possibilities and new joy. Some of y'all are no fun. Jesus, Harold, Christ. 
Um, I had no idea what I, where I was going to find some shit like that, and I made a few painful failed attempts before I found one that fit me. I have conversations with my partners all the time about how holding our current iteration with open hands means giving each other room to grow if we need to, that our commitment to one another doesn't preclude our expo other exploration if our body should ever ask for it. That's some scary shit, y'all. That means that we never reach this point where we stop fucking trying, where we get to stop bringing our whole self-presence to each other because shit is locked down and we don't have to worry about it anymore. That, to me, is one of the biggest potential pitfalls of monogamous marriage or partnership. The love story doesn't end at the altar or the moving in together. For people like me, it probably never will. But listen, married bitches, I want to challenge y'all to write bigger, better romances with your lives. Your hearts are capable of so much. Your capacity for connection is more expansive than culture ever taught you, guaranteed. Part of that is getting to know yourself, what fits you well, what you're looking for. The best stories are written on the strongest foundations. Don't, I, I think um, the idea of what is, what is normal in sex is such a like a, a wrong way to think about sex mm -hmm. because that like normal sex like what even is normal sex is that like a cishet dude and a cishet woman like well therefore all of the sex i'm having is not normal right and i think that's great i think when you sort of expand your ideas of sex beyond this like heteronormative idea of what is sexual and what is intimate a lot more opens up mm. and it's a lot more fun and I also think that like trust your pants feels you know <laughs> like if your body wants something there's a reason it wants that and it's okay to explore that and it's okay if you're even like I'm interested and we can try this the one time and then after you do it you're yeah. like nah, nah I'm good I think on that but, like you tried it. Yeah. Because you wanted to try it. And you're allowed to be curious about your body. Like, you're allowed to be curious about what feels good to you. You're allowed to seek pleasure. You're allowed to explore that and play with that. And sex, that's what sex should be. It should be fun and playful and curious. And I think what's most important in that is having a sexual partner who sees and affirms that. Right. Like, that is what will make the difference, is having someone who's willing to be curious with you and someone who also is willing to respect your boundaries. How do you know if someone is... How do you know if you have a sexual partner who is safe and willing to respect your boundaries? Because I think... I know I've had experiences where somebody, mm -hmm. somebody will give lip service to that, but when push comes to shove, they're not, they're not down. Or they're not willing to go the extra mile to make sure that I'm comfortable or something. Yeah, I I mean, I think, again, for me, it's a lot of, like, a, a gut feeling. Mm. And a lot of being able to talk about it. I think there's a lot of us, and I'm talking about me specifically here, yeah, that, that have to, like, reset our gut feeling. Mm -hmm. um, because it's obviously there, like, that that intuitive instinct in your body um, is is something that we all can have access to, mm -hmm. but maybe don't um, yeah. on the same level. Um, she often gets kind of squelched. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes I mean, I've thought something... Especially, especially in evangelical culture, which tells you to distrust your body. Right, right. I think finding the voice of my body in kind of the din of voices that are going on inside mm -hmm. of me um, has been 
a, a, a years long task and I'm, I'm still working on getting there. Yeah, it's so hard. I'm working on my response time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. And it's hard to understand, like, when when your body is talking and when to listen to her. I think in terms of sexual partners, I mean, I think a really good indication of whether or not they're going to respect you is if they're willing to have lots of conversation about mm. sex. And that doesn't necessarily all... I mean, people can say one thing and then do another. Right. But if you're in a relationship with someone who asks things like, hey, what do you want to be called? Is it okay if I touch you in this way? Yeah. Let's fill out a yes, no, maybe list and discuss that. And someone who's also willing to show their own vulnerabilities. Mm. That is, a, like, to me, it's a pretty good indicator. It's almost like it's not a thing that we have been told that we can or should expect mm. is someone who wants us to enjoy our own bodies and enjoy right. our own pleasure. Right. And so it can be groundbreaking to have a partner saying, well, what do you want? Does this feel good? Mm. Is this okay? Like, you know, tell me yes, no, <laughs> like red, yellow, green, whatever it takes. Right. And I also think, I guess when it comes to like, you know, trying the kinky stuff, if you will, <laughs> that sort of relationship takes time to build. Mm. I think if you are newer to perhaps more adventurous sex, it might seem really tempting to find, just be like, well, I'm going to go out and like find a dom to fuck me. Right. And I, I get that temptation, but I also think there's a certain level of trust that is required in anything that involves sharing control Mm. and that takes time to build yeah so maybe take it slow (laughs) do your research use lube (laughs) wash your hands boil your sex toys (laughs) boil your dicks guys (laughs) but only if it's silicone which it should be because you shouldn't be putting anything else in your body okay anything other than silicone i mean you can put other things in your body but i would recommend silicone what about like glass 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 is okay glass is fine okay (laughs) I mean, don't, don't, Hannah, don't put any porous materials in your body. Okay, okay, see, I'm don't learning right now, too. Don't use a silicone lube with a silicone toy. Oh. And also do not, did you, please tell me you knew that. No, I didn't. Oh. oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it'll, um, it can, like, disintegrate the toy. Oh. Which is why you also That's don't want to totally use. That's totally happening. You need to be careful about the kind of lube that you use with condoms. Mm. I think... Maybe it's a, a silicone lube that can, like, fuck with condoms. Okay, that's good to look. So if you're using a silicone toy, use a water-based lube. Okay. Don't ever put anything that's been in your butt in your vagina. These are Without these are boiling all, it first. These are all fire. <laughs> some of them, um, some of them is, you have definitely already taught me, and some of them are like, what? Okay, I feel adding that like to I this. have talked about most of this before <laughs> i'm uh, sure you have <laughs> wash your hands get gloves if you need to they come in handy can we have like a queer eye but where it's just you helping baby queers learn how to have healthy sexual practices or i feel like that's our group chat <laughs> Fair. <laughs> i feel like that's already my entire existence <laughs> <laughs> that's Hannah on the internet Yes, that's me on the internet. I love that. Use 
use your lube, wash your hands, boil your dicks. Um, where should people find you if they want to read your shit? Um, I am at Hannah Bonning pretty much everywhere. And you can follow, there's a separate Twitter for impurity culture, right? Yeah, it's just impurity culture. Okay, cool. Also, very easy. And that, from there, you can find, like, all of our Scarletine stuff. Okay, you post all of your Scarletine articles there. Yeah, or you can also just, like, go to Scarletine and search impurity culture, and it'll bring up all of our articles. I love that. Oof. Okay, that was a lot. Can we all just take a big inhale, big exhale, and just have some fucking fun this week? I want to hear about it. Hit me up, Hannah Posh, P-A-A-S-E-H. Get in on the fun on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash millenniagram. Let's continue digging ourselves out of our ditches together.